again, thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. They do a fantastic job in that song. Listen, that's straight scripture, by the way. That's Psalm 103. And you want to be blessed and encouraged in your faith. Read Psalm 103 in its entirety. The choir just about sang it in its entirety. And let me tell you, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And then the psalmist goes through the list and just begins mentioning all of the wonderful benefits that are ours. Forgiveness of sin. Aren't you grateful that your sins have been forgiven if you know Jesus? I'm so thankful to know that when I sin and I come short of God's glory, the Bible says that if I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm thankful for that. And so there's nothing like knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. One of the benefits that the psalmist mentions in Psalm 103 is that he puts a crown of loving kindness and mercy upon your head, which means that now through Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God and you have God as your father. And you know what that implies? It implies that you have an inheritance, all that belongs to him, he's freely given to you as his own son or daughter. And so listen, be encouraged by the wonderful fact that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that's cause for celebration in your heart. And the good news is, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, before the service is out, I'm gonna tell you how you can enter into a relationship with him by turning to him and trusting and placing all of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the sixth chapter of Ephesians. And this morning we're gonna look at verses 18, 19, and 20. And if you're new this morning, uh, the last couple of months we've been in a series of studies from this passage of Scripture where we've looked at the armor of God. And there are six individual pieces of armor that the Apostle Paul mentions here. And we've looked at those piece by piece. And we come now to verse 18 and notice that the first word that Paul mentions in verse 18 is that word prayer. Having fully dressed ourselves in the armor of God, which basically means understanding who you are in terms of your position in Jesus Christ. Uh, the armor of God represents all that's yours as someone who has come to faith in Christ. In a very real way, it's just you practically living your life in light of your position in Christ as a believer. And so the various pieces of armor that he's mentioned in this passage have to do with the belt of truth, and that's followed by uh, the breastplate of righteousness. There's the shoes of gospel peace that we've placed upon our feet. In every circumstance, we take up the shield of faith with which we are able to extinguish those flaming arrows that the devil hurls our way. The helmet of salvation is upon our head, which means now our mind and our thought life is under the control, the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the hope of salvation that we have, that no matter how difficult our circumstances become, we have hope for the future as those who've come to know Jesus. We've taken the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and now we come to verse 18, and though there's not a particular piece of armor associated with what Paul says here, he does say, here's how you fight your battles. Once you are now dressed and ready for battle, 
Here's how you fight your battles. Now, many of you will remember some years ago, there was a, a Christian film that came out. Was, the title of it was War Room. And I think it was by the Kendrick Brothers and Sherwood Pictures. And they've partnered together over the years, and they've released a number of these Christian faith-based films. But in the movie War Room, uh, the main character of the movie is a lady by the name of Elizabeth Jordan. And she is uh, played by Priscilla Shirer in the film. But on the surface, uh, she and her husband, Tony, they appear to, be, to have it all together. I mean, they both have lucrative careers. Uh, they live in a large house. They're living the American dream. But just beneath the surface, behind the scenes, their marriage has become a war zone and their daughter has been somehow caught up in the middle of it all and their, their marriage is literally about to be ripped apart at the seams. Well, with the counsel of an older godly woman named Miss Clara, uh, Elizabeth learns to begin fighting for her family in prayer rather than fighting against her family. And that's really the premise of the movie. And in a very memorable statement, Miss Clara tells Elizabeth, in order to stand up and fight the enemy, you need to get down on your knees and pray. And so to save her marriage and her family, Elizabeth turns her closet into a place of prayer, a place of focused, concentrated prayer. And it's based on a verse of scripture from Matthew chapter six, where Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who sees in secret. And so Elizabeth comes to this realization that only heaven can fix what earth cannot. Now I thought about that, and I want to ask you that same question in your own life. Have you come to the realization that only heaven can fix what earth cannot? Now wouldn't you agree with me that there's a lot of problems raging on planet earth right now? In terms of violence and suffering and agony and injustice exploitation of the weak. You think about the issues in your own life, the things that you're wrestling with. It just seems like the devil is having a heyday. There are plenty of problems in terms of both the world around us and our own individual lives, but have we come to this realization that heaven is the solution? Only heaven can fix what earth cannot. And so really, that godly counsel that Miss Clara gives to Elizabeth Jordan in that movie, it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul tells us right here in Ephesians 6, 18. In order to stand up and fight the enemy, you need to get down on your knees and pray. And so notice with me what Paul writes there, beginning in verse 18. Having explained everything concerning the armor which is ours, the armor of God, he now says, here's what you, you do now that you're dressed and ready for battle, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so I want to speak from this subject this morning, dressed and ready for battle. One person has said that prayer is 
God's backstage pass into a personal audience with him. Have you thought about that? That as a Christian, you've been given a backstage, all-access pass into the very throne room of God himself. And you can rest assured that the enemy of your soul, he doesn't want you to have fellowship with God the Father. And so he seeks to distract you, to divert your understanding, to diminish your confidence, to sort of squelch out your determination to pray. Because listen, prayer, unlike anything else, really gives us legitimate authority to invoke history, um, uh, heaven into history. And that's really what we're asking God to do when we get on our knees or when we pray, when we come before him. We're asking that heaven would invade earth, uh, that the eternal would somehow show up and manifest itself in the temporal. That the infinite, the God who was, who is, and who always will be, we're asking through prayer that somehow he manifest himself in the finite circumstances of my life and your life. And so truly, when you think about it, prayer is nothing short of a miracle whereby you and I, as finite creatures, are able to call upon the infinite God and have communion with him. And everything in life, uh, God uses it in such a way, really the Holy Spirit uses it to draw us into a closer relationship with himself. And that often explains why God allows negative events in your life that you can't fix. Because it forces you to really pursue him in prayer out of the sheer desperation of your own circumstances. And that's something that a praying Christian understands. You feel like you're between a rock and a hard place? Well, God's word sheds light on our condition and tells us as far as this life is concerned, there's a whole lot more going on around us than what meets the eye. Which is why the scripture tells us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the result of that will be the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so that's what Paul is saying here to these Ephesian believers. Now that he's explained the armor of God, he's saying now that you're dressed, you're ready for battle, here's what you need to do. So he's not saying that you get dressed and just stand there. No, he's saying here's how you really engage in the conflict. Here's how you fight your battles. You you do it on your knees. Though the conflict is real and though the enemy is real and though the battle is intense, we're told here what we've got to give ourselves to and that's the emphasis here in these verses. It's prayer. So when you take Paul's words into careful consideration, you're reminded once again of the supremely important place that prayer should occupy in your life as a child of God. Because it's a reminder of how prayer is really one of the most important things that a Christian can cultivate in his or her life for the sake of spiritual growth. And prayer is absolutely essential in this business of spiritual warfare. But if we were to be honest, most of us will freely admit that maintaining uh, sort of a consistent, vibrant prayer life, this is one of the most difficult things to do because it seems like there are a million other distractions that come our way dragging us from our prayer closet. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that 
uh, everything else in the Christian life is easier than prayer. And, and, and I think the primary reason for that is, is the enemy fights against prayer unlike anything else. You know, let me just be honest with you. The, the, the enemy would fight against prayer unlike anything else in terms of our corporate ministry as a local church. He's not threatened by our resources and all that we have and all that we think is necessary for effective ministry. You know what he fights against more than anything else in your life? When you hit your knees, when you cry out, Abba, Father, when you call upon God in complete faith, and, and one of the reasons I think that sometimes we shy away from our responsibility in prayer is we feel inadequate. Uh, we, we have plenty of other things that we've got to do. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, says that American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn how to pray. When you think about it, there are just a million distractions that come our way. And, and now with just the push of a button, a click, a ding, a swoosh, Anybody in the world can have our attention. You can scroll through social media and spend endless hours just incessantly scrolling through your news feed and surfing the internet and binge watching something on Netflix or whatever. There are a million distractions to call you away from time of focused, concentrated prayer. You can rest assured that the enemy, oftentimes, he's behind all of that. Oswald Chambers said that Prayer doesn't fit us for greater works. Prayer itself is the greater work. And that most certainly is true as it relates to spiritual warfare because this is why Paul is emphatically stating the importance of prayer before he closes out his letter to the Ephesian church. And what he says about prayer follows on the heels of what he's already explained about the armor of God. So that the idea is we can't even put on the armor and take our stand apart from prayer. And one of the ways that you put on the armor of God in a practical way is through prayer. I think it was Warren Wiersbe in his book, The Strategy of Satan, uh, he said that he begins his prayer life, his, his devotional life every morning by praying through the armor of God piece by piece as he begins his day. That in prayer, he goes before God and says something to the effect, Lord, by faith, I put on the belt of truth. Make me a man of integrity. Help me be discerning and keep my eyes open to the lies that the enemy would try to deceive me by. By faith, I put on the breastplate of righteousness so that I'm secure in the knowledge and understanding of who I am in Jesus Christ. All of my sins have been forgiven. I don't stand before God on the basis of my own merit, but I stand before God on the merit of the Lord Jesus alone, and so on and so forth. He goes on down the list and prays the arm. By the way, that might be a good strategy for you to employ in your own personal life. That as you begin to pray, you begin meditating first and foremost upon what it means to put your armor on, to take your stand, and then you begin engaging as far as prayer is concerned. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. And we're given some insight into how he wants these believers to specifically pray for himself. Because he says there in verse 19, pray for me, that words may be given to me, that I might open my mouth and boldly proclaim the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. And so don't forget the fact that Paul is writing these words as a prisoner of Rome. By the way, I think that perhaps my uh, initial prayer request 
would be probably something along these lines. Uh, and by the way, y'all pray for me that I would be released from these chains. I'd be tempted to want to pray for my own release if I was in prison. But is that how Paul wants the church to pray for himself? Not at all. And why is that? It's because he sees himself ultimately as being a prisoner of the Lord, not a prisoner of Rome. In other words, he understands that his circumstances are by divine design, and as such, they're loaded with purpose, and and they afford this gospel opportunity which comes only by prayer. Now listen, folks, we're so quick to pass judgment on our circumstances. And we experience pain, and we experience setback, and we experience some form of disappointment, and we're quick to get discouraged and depressed in our spirits. When in reality, it could be those very circumstances that God is using and orchestrating in your life to draw you into a closer walk with himself. And all that we would be able to see that with the eyes of faith and thereby value prayer and practice prayer more so than we do. And so there really are a number of things that we can learn about prayer and spiritual warfare as we come to the end of this study on, on the armor of God. Now I want you to see from these verses there are several key observations about prayer based upon what Paul writes concerning its importance here just in verses 18, 19, and 20. Now I want to give you one of these this morning and then we'll come back next week and we'll finish up with the other two observations. But observation number one, notice with me the relationship that we have in prayer. And we really see this in that first line in verse number 18 where Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit. So that in just a few brief words, he's covering the what, the when, and the how of prayer. Having put on the six pieces of armor that he's already explained, what are we to do? Well, he says we must pray. And notice he uses that word prayer or praying uh, and, and, and supplication. He uses that word twice in verse number 18. And the word that he uses there, the New Testament word for prayer or praying, it's a word that describes an attitude of complete dependence. It carries this idea of prostrating oneself before God, fully aware of his omnipotence. You know what the word omnipotence means? It means all power. Omni-power. God has all power. Is anything too hard for God? I mean, whatever it is in your life that seems to be posing the greatest challenge to you, I want to ask you the question, is anything too hard for God? Because prayer, when it prostrates itself before God and his omnipotence, recognizes there's nothing too hard for my God. There's nothing too big that my God can't handle. But this word also implies stretching yourself out before God and his omniscience. You know what omniscience means? It means all-knowing. You may not know why certain things have happened the way that they do. You may not understand why the Lord has allowed some particular crisis or event to unfold the way that it has in your life. But one thing you can rest assured is that God has all knowledge He is omniscient, therefore when you stretch yourself out before him and his omniscience, you're depending totally upon him and his wisdom, his insight, his power, his omnipresence. That means he's everywhere present at the same time, which means there could be a crisis ongoing in my life. God's intimately involved in the details. There could be a crisis involved in your life. God's intimately involved in those details. 
God's intimately involved in what's unfolding right now in the Middle East. Don't think for one second that all of that is beyond his ability and power. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And that, that, folks, is something that we can understand when we come to God in prayer. A relationship with God understands these very important truths. So that's what we should do. And then when should we pray? Well, notice Paul says praying at all times. And the word that he uses there, translated times, it's the Greek word, the Greek word kairos. Now, in New Testament Greek, there were two or three words that are often translated as time. You've got the word chronos, as in chronology. Uh, that word describes time as it unfolds in sort of a general way. Kairos is a different word. Kairos is a word that means an opportune time, a specific time, uh, an appointed time. Now, think about how this might work. If I were to say, well, let's meet for lunch sometime. You would say, okay, well, that's probably the word chronos because it's referring to time in a general sense. There's nothing real specific about it. But if I were to say, tomorrow you and I have an appointment at 12.30 for lunch, that would be the word kairos because it's describing time in its appointment. Uh, it's, it's fixed. It's specific. That's the word that Paul uses there in verse 18 when he says, praying at all times. So that it sort of links us back with what he said there in verse 13 about the evil day. The idea is there are specific times in your life where the enemy launches his attack upon you. When spiritual warfare seems to be staring you in the face, when the enemy seems to be breathing down your neck, it's in such times that Paul says, you don't need to panic, you need to pray. That's an appointed time for you to pray and to cast yourself entirely upon the mercies of the Lord Jesus. Everything else around us says we ought to panic. You may have the advice of a well-meaning friend tells you to panic. The news does everything in the world to try to get us to panic. Social media tries to get us to panic. No, the Bible says what we need to do is pray at all times. So you've got the what, you've got the when, and then notice the how. How should we pray? Paul says we should pray at all times in the Spirit. That's something that implies relationship. Someone says, well, pastor, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Because Let's be honest, this is something that's often been misunderstood. Some have interpreted that to mean, well, you've just got to be emotional. And they, they think that praying in the Spirit is some type of emotionalism as compared to formalism, both of which Jesus says is really not prayer. You remember in Matthew chapter 6 when he's teaching the disciples to pray? He says, don't be like the Pharisees who love to pray those eloquent prayers all to be seen by others. And then he says, don't be like the Gentiles who think that they're going to be heard for their many words and their vain repetitions and just trying to work themselves up in an emotional frenzy. So you've got formalism and emotionalism that are both ruled out as far as prayer is concerned. Neither is this mysticism, as if you've got to get yourself you know, on a greater plane of consciousness before you can really begin to adequately pray in the spirit 
No, listen, the meaning is rather simple. What it means to pray in the Spirit means that you have a relationship with God the Father through God the Son in God the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. By the way, you can see a little bit of this. Uh, Paul explains a little bit of this over in Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there for just a moment, look at what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that the idea when you're walking with God in relationship, the relationship you have with God the Father, through God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit impresses upon your heart the way you ought to pray and the things that you ought to pray for. What it is, it's fellowship with God. That's what prayer is. More than anything else, the heart and soul of your relationship with God is your prayer life. And so I'd ask you the question this morning, how is your prayer life? And so the first thing we've got to understand about prayer is that it involves this personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so all that Paul has mentioned thus far, it's, it's predicated upon a believer's relationship with God. Only those who trust Christ can put on his armor. Only those who know Jesus can commune and have fellowship with God through prayer. And so for that reason then, there are some relational principles that we should keep in mind as we give ourselves to this type of praying that Paul is describing. If prayer is all about relationship, well, what are these relational principles? Well, let me give them to you rather quickly. So principle number one Know that the priority of prayer is something that's emphasized all throughout the pages of God's Word. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, you see the priority of prayer as it relates to your relationship with God. That's something that's highly emphasized. The first couple of chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man and woman in his own image. What's the purpose behind that? So that he can have a relationship, so that you can know him so that you can sort of represent him and reflect his glory. That's the reason behind your existence, the purpose for which you've been created, to know God in terms of relationship. The Bible says that Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God there in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins against God. What's the first thing that he does upon learning that he's naked? He runs. He hears God, he comes calling, and what does Adam do? He runs and tries to hide among the trees of the garden. So right then and there, you see that something has changed in terms of man's relationship with God. No longer is he walking with God in the cool of the day. Now he's running from God. And that pretty much sums up man's existence in the world. Lost, alienated, cut off from the life of God. What, does, what, what do people do? They run from God. They're not running to God. They're not seeking after God. And so what does God do? He comes calling for Adam. God takes the initiative. And, and we see that God provides a covering for Adam and Eve, requires the death of a substitute. Blood is shed so that Adam and Eve can be clothed in the skins of that animal. 
And it's a picture of what would have to happen in order for that relationship with God to be restored, for man to be reconciled to God. God would have to do something to reconcile us to himself. And so it's not insignificant that in Genesis chapter 4, the very first mention of prayer that you really see It's after the birth of Adam and Eve's son, Seth, and his son, Enosh, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And and that's largely the story that you see in Genesis, the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God takes the initiative in revealing himself and establishing a covenant with those patriarchs. In response, what do they do? They build an altar. They offer a sacrifice. They have fellowship with God through prayer. You see this all the way through Moses and what God does with Moses and how he uh, reveals his law and his covenant with Moses, with Israel. They're at Mount Sinai and God says, here's how I want my people whom I've chosen. Here's how I want them to approach me. Then he outlines the priesthood and how the priest of Israel would represent the people and they would offer sacrifices upon the appropriate altar because in order to go into the presence of God, man has to have a mediator. Did you know that in order for you to pray, you have to have a mediator between God and man? And so that's the story of the Old Testament. The tension builds, the story grows, so much so that when we get to the New Testament, we see that prayer has changed dramatically, especially as it relates to Jesus and what he came to accomplish because Jesus, he's the one who teaches us to pray, our Father, the chart in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Because in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you what you have. You have have both an altar, a high priest, and a sacrifice. And now because Jesus is the altar, and because Jesus is the priest, and Jesus is the sacrifice, now as someone who's come to faith in him, I'm ushered into the presence of God himself. God, that's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so you've got the priority of prayer emphasized all throughout Scripture. And then notice the second relational principle. The prerequisite of prayer is a righteous standing with God through faith in his Son. That word prerequisite means requirement. The thing is, Paul is calling upon believers to pray here. Those who've been supplied with God's armor. Those who are now dressed in the righteousness of Jesus uh, through faith in Jesus. And so it should be understood then that the only person who has access to heaven's throne room is the one who has faith in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man can draw close to the Father but through him. And so That's an exclusive claim, but listen, it's the most inclusive exclusivity there is because the gospel invitation goes out to any and all who would draw near to God through faith in God's Son. He is my faithful high priest who ushers me into heaven's throne room. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and the verses that follow. So if you want your prayer to be heard, let me ask you the question. Are you standing in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you by faith repented of your sin, placed your faith and trust in Christ, and you're a believer? Because it's Jesus and his righteousness that grants you access into the Father's throne room. And then the third relational principle as far as prayer is concerned is this. The privilege of prayer 
Now, for you as a believer, it's to come before the throne of God who desires to have fellowship with you. I mean, the moment that you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're given this wonderful, awesome privilege of entering into the holy presence of God. As Jesus himself escorts you into heaven's throne room where now you can call God your Father. You've been adopted into the family of God. Now listen, I've never been in an earthly throne room. Imagine what it would be like to be able to be ushered into the throne room there at Buckingham Palace and have an audience with the queen. We're now the king of England. I've never had that experience. More than likely, you've never had that experience. The Oval Office, we would say that's the highest office in the land, the closest thing I guess we would have to an earthly throne room uh, in, in our own country. But it's not a throne room, it's the Oval Office, but it's the most powerful office in the land. I've never been in that office. I've met a couple of individuals who've had the privilege of being in that office, and, and they say without exception that when you walk into that office and you've got an audience with the, presence, the president, it's an overwhelming thing to experience. I've never had that experience. Some of you might remember one of the most iconic photos of the Oval Office. It was taken when, when John F. Kennedy was president as he's there in the Oval Office, but, but in the photo, you've got the president who's sitting there at the Resolute desk, and little JFK Jr., who was only two or three years old at the time, is sitting there playing under the desk at his daddy's feet while his father's working. Now, it may have been the most powerful office in the land, but for John Jr., it was a place where a little boy could be found at the feet of his daddy. Now, folks, let me tell you, that's what prayer is for you as a Christian man or a woman. Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf, you now can enter into heaven's throne room as the child of God. Is that not an awesome thought? You now can call upon God as your Father. Which is why Jesus goes on to say about prayer in Matthew 6. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Why would you ever worry about the details of your life if the one who occupies the throne in heaven's throne room is your heavenly father. If he takes care of all of the planets and keeps them in their proper orbit, if he keeps the stars burning and blazing in the night sky, and if he can call every one of them by name, if he keeps the sun producing its light day in, day out, if he can do all of that, then don't you think he can take care of the details and circumstances of your life? He's my father. And so the implications then of this are nothing short of amazing. And so you've got this awesome privilege. And then fourth, a fourth relational principle concerning prayer involves the purpose of prayer. What's the ultimate purpose of prayer? Why do I pray to begin with? Well, the purpose is to strengthen and deepen my intimacy with God. Far more than it being a means of me presenting my, my wish list to God or approaching him as if he's some kind of genie in a lamp, prayer is the means by which my faith is deepened and my intimacy with God is strengthened. And so it's relational communication with God. And as such, it's sincere, it's honest and without pretense, and it's direct. Let me tell you, my kids because of the relationship they have with me, they can be very direct with me in a way that perhaps nobody else can. 
Now you think about that. That, that. that applies to your relationship with God. You can come before him as your father and be completely honest in terms of your prayer, completely honest in terms of what you ask. Let me just go ahead and clue you in on something. He knows about it anyway. So you're not telling him anything that he don't already know in prayer. But you see, when you pray, you are going to learn something about him that he wants you to know. And so you can pray in a variety of formats. It can happen while you're on your knees in your war room, your prayer closet. It can happen as you're driving down the highway behind the wheel of your vehicle, which I would say, please, don't close your eyes if that's where you pray. Be, be mindful and do what Paul says Keep alert with all perseverance. Doesn't matter the time of day, doesn't matter the place, doesn't matter the circumstances. You've got an open invitation to approach the high king of heaven who is your father. And what a wonderful, powerful, encouraging thought that 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 is. There's a way in which you can draw close to God. You can come to know God. Only, the only way, really it's through prayer. Intimacy through prayer which then leads to the fifth relational principle, the final principle that I would give you would be this, the power of prayer. And the power of prayer, it's not simply us talking to God, but it also involves us receiving from God. Because prayer is two-way conversation. You ever had, tried to have a relationship with somebody who did all the talking? <laughs> How's that relationship working out for you? I guarantee you in your marriage, guys, if you're the one who does all the talking, you make all the decisions about where we eat, where we go on vacation, what we do, how we do it, when we do it. Woo-wee. Because, listen, a relationship demands two-way communication, doesn't it? And that's what prayer is. It's, a, it's, it's, it's two-way conversation between you. It's a relationship, the heart and soul of your relationship with God. Now, keep in mind what Paul has already said. It's not incidental or coincidental that he links praying in the Spirit here in verse 18 with the sword of the Spirit in verse 17, which is the Word of God. So that when we come to God's Word, God, God speaks as I spend time with God in his word, I understand that he has something that he wants to show me. There's something that he wants to teach me. I discover promises that he's made to me in his word. And then praying in the spirit means that I claim those promises as my own. And I believe that God will honor his promise. And I ask God to honor his promise. And you know what? That's a prayer that he delights in answering. Such as this kind of praying. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So praying in the Spirit means that you're praying in line with God's will. And your, 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 your prayer life, it's, it's Spirit-led, but it's Scripture-fed. Best illustration I could think of for this was when I was little. Uh, I used to love getting up on my daddy's lap or my my papa's lap and, and riding with him on the tractor going out through the field and I remember as I was just a boy I would so want to I wanted to drive the tractor just when I was a little fella I couldn't drive it operate it by myself couldn't reach the pedals but my dad would put, pick me up and he would put me on his lap and we'd take off maybe down the field or out the road 
And he would let me steer. And so I'd have my little hands on the steering wheel of that tractor. But daddy would take his big hands and put them right over top of mine. Now I thought I was driving and steering the tractor. But you know it was, it was the presence of my ever watchful, protective, loving father that was steering me in the direction that I should go. Listen, that's what it means to pray in the spirit. When it is to put yourself in a position of just complete and total dependence upon God, casting yourself entirely upon the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not going to abandon you. You may be fearful, you may be afraid. You may not know what's next, but you can rest assured that if his eye is on the sparrow, he's watching over his own. Well, I've got to stop here. Joseph Scriven was an Irishman who lived in the early part of the 19th century. And, and he had plans as a young man to settle down and to marry. And, you know, life was good for him as a young man. But unfortunately and tragically, the day before his wedding, his soon-to-be bride tragically drowned. And so the grief was more than he could bear. So Joseph Scriven uh, moved across the ocean to Canada to start over. And there he met and fell, fell in love again with a young lady whose name was Eliza Rice. And it wasn't long before the two of them planned to be married. It's unthinkable that you could lose so much in one young lifetime, but just weeks before Joseph Scriven and Eliza Rice were to be married, she became sick and she died from the illness. So that by the time he was 25, he had tragically lost two fiancés to tragic circumstances. And so it was from his heartache and through his faith in God that God began working in his heart and calling him to ministry. He took a vow of poverty and began to help the poor and the handicapped in any way that he could. And so for several years that would follow, he made himself available to anybody and everybody who had a particular need, and he found a real comfort and purpose in selfless sacrifice well heartache would strike him yet again when he learned that his mother who was still home in Ireland became sick he didn't have the money or the funds to be able to help her or to travel to be with her and so he did the only thing that he knew to do out of a burdened heart he sat down and he began writing the lyrics to a poem for her the lyrics of which have brought comfort and encouragement to generations since. And here's what he wrote to his mom. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Listen, are you overwhelmed with a sense of grief and sadness for whatever reason? Do you feel like there's a burden weighing heavily upon your heart? Something in your own life, maybe something in the life of someone you love. Maybe you're burdened over a spouse, burdened over a child or a grandchild. 
burdened over a sense of just repeated failure in your own life and in your own struggle with temptation and spiritual warfare and you just feel like the enemy, boy, he's just been dogging my steps of late, pastor. What do I do? Listen, you put on the armor of God and you pray at all times in the spirit. That's what you do. And God will strengthen you with himself and surround you like a shield so that you understand something. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're safe. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Christ as your savior this morning, he loves you. He bled and died upon a cross for your salvation and he rose again from the dead. And you see, the thing is, if you want to be able to have access to God as your father and have the access of a child in heaven's throne room, there's only one way. You've got to come through Jesus. Do you know Jesus? If not, then right there where you are, I'm going to ask you to just say something along these lines in the form of a prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and my need for you and your righteousness. I cannot save myself. But I believe that you died for me on the cross. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I confess that you were Lord. Please save me, Jesus. My friend, let me tell you something. Any person who has ever called out in faith to the Lord Jesus, he's welcomed them in with open arms, forgiving you of all your sin, writing your name in the Lamb's book of life, and giving you his spirit who comes to live within. And now this privilege of prayer is yours. So draw near to your heavenly Father in your time of need. Lord, thank you for your word. Teach us to pray, oh God. It's easy to panic. It's harder to pray. And so Lord, there may be some men and women in the room, maybe even watching online, Lord, they've been panicking of late for whatever reason. Oh, God, be an encouragement and a strength to their soul to know that they have access to heaven's throne room and that by faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ, they can pray to God their Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for such wonderful access. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.